Let's pray together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in everything he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. God, grant, I pray, that we would delight in the Word of God and meditate on it day and night. Show us the inestimable value of the Bible in this service, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a shame that um, in our theological and political era, the words conservative and liberal are opposites. It hasn't always been the case. The true opposite of conserve is throw away, waste. Squander. To conserve is to hold on to, to keep, to maintain, and of course that could be bad if you held on to something hurtful and untrue, and it could be really good if you held on to what is healthy and true. The opposite of liberal, once upon a time, meant stingy and tight fisted and uncharitable. To be liberal was to be generous and free-handed. So before they became politically and, and theologically stereotyped, you could be both, and you should be both. So hold fast, Bethlehem, to what is good and true and beautiful, and be free-handed and generous and large-hearted with what you have. So here we are now, verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, and Paul is telling Timothy in the old sense to be conservative. But as for you, continue in, stay in, remain in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So, Timothy, I'm telling you, it's the main thing I'm telling you, stay there. Continue there. Remain there. Don't go forward. Don't progress away from there. Don't leave it. 
And there's a but at the beginning of the verse to contrast that call from the people in verse 13 who went on. Evil people and imposters will go on. The Greek word advance, progress. They will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So don't advance with them. Don't go forward, away from this point, Timothy. Stay, continue in what you have learned and believed. Don't be like the people in chapter 4, verse 4. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Don't be like that. Stand, stay, continue, keep, maintain. I think that's the main point of the rest of this chapter. And by the way, I'm only going to go to the end of the chapter because as I worked on this, I thought, no, can't pile all that into one sermon. So verses 1 to 5 is going to go with 6 to 8 or 9 next time, Lord willing. So the main point of today's text and message is continue in what you have learned and believed. As for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And then the rest of the chapter is six reasons why he should do that. And all the reasons circle around the Bible and the Word of God. And so my prayer for us is that we would be stirred up as never before to continue in the Bible. Love the Bible. Stay in the Bible, not advance beyond the Bible. That's where we're going. And I, I pray that the Lord will work a miracle in you and that you would feel affections for the Bible far greater than you've ever felt before because none of us has felt what we should for the miracle that God has spoken and given us His Word. So here are six reasons why Timothy and you should continue stay in what you have believed and what you have learned. Number one, the character of the people who taught you the truth. Let's read verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So how does that little participial phrase function. It functions as an argument. Because you know, you know the kind of person you learned it from, don't you, Timothy? One reason we all believe what we believe and should believe what we believe is the quality of the witness that we trusted, the character of the people who taught us. Now, who was that for Timothy? Probably, Paul has in mind, his mother and grandmother for this reason. He goes on and says, And how from childhood 
you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. His father was a Greek and not a believer. What's left is his mother and his grandmother, and the reason we know that is from chapter 1, verse 5, which goes like this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you. Continue in what you have learned and believed, knowing from whom you learned it. These women are to be taken really seriously. Don't walk away from that quality of human being, Timothy, Eunice and Lois, your mother and your grandmother. Be very slow to laugh them off. The point he's making is that part of the reason, I don't want to overstate it, just part of the reason for standing his ground in his belief, in what they taught him about the Bible, is the character of his mother and the character of his grandmother. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. Don't don't blow this away by saying, mothers can make mistakes. Of course mothers can make mistakes. There are pagan mothers and Muslim mothers and Hindu mothers and unbelieving mothers. Paul knows that. The point is, there was something about these two women that should make Timothy slow to forsake their teaching. It's It's not an infallible test. It's just one very important one, very important one, and you all can bear witness. Whether it was your parents, it was somebody. Part of the foundation of our confidence in what we have been taught is the kind of people who taught us. Reliable testimonies are a valid source of knowledge. And the quality of the witness increases the credibility of the testimony. We stake our lives on testimonies. And part of the ways we come to do that is by the kind of person who's telling us what we have to decide on. And so, argument number one, Timothy, is knowing from whom you learned it. If there hasn't been anybody in your life like that, be that for some. Number two, continue in what you've learned and believe because the marks of divine holiness are in the Scriptures. Let's keep reading in verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the holy or sacred writings. Literally, holy writings, holy scriptures. There's a reason on the spine of our Bible. This is holy Bible. It comes from this verse. The term holy writings signifies, Timothy, 
The scriptures they brought you up in are holy. And calling them holy means they participate in, they share the marks of the holiness of their author. God is the Holy One of Israel. These are His writings, and therefore these writings bear the marks of divine holiness. Don't leave them. God, if you met God on the street, you'd know he was God. God has about him divine qualities that are self-authenticating. It is not surprising, therefore, that when he brought into being over time a book, it would share in some of those defining, distinguishing qualities that discerning eyes can see and know this is of God. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and I would add revealed in the Gospels or the Bible. And the fact that you may not see evidences, defining marks of the holiness of God may be a problem with your eyes, not a problem with the Bible, since Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what is really there, really there. And someday that will be obvious to everybody, either in this life or the next. So ask for open eyes if you don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to the marks of God's holiness in the Bible. The evidences that when you read it, it simply screams, Of God! Number three, continue, Timothy, in what you've learned and believed because of the power of scriptures to save sinners. Again, let's read it from the beginning. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, number one, from whom you learned it, and two, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the holy writings, and three, now, which are able, the word literally powerful, to make you wise unto salvation. Wise for salvation. One of the ways that we come to trust a message is by the power it has to change people. In this case, Paul reminds Timothy that the, the Scriptures give a kind of wisdom that leads a person to salvation. The Scriptures are uniquely suited, they are divinely suited to subdue human folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. The Bible is designed perfectly to subdue, conquer, remove, push back, obliterate stupidity and folly which keeps the person from seeing the way to salvation, Christ. 
Positively, it imparts wisdom. So you soak yourself in this book. A miracle happens. Wisdom starts to happen in your, your being. Wisdom happens. A wisdom that goes somewhere. It's unto salvation. Not a random wisdom. Like how to get to Mars and have curiosity going around there. That's really amazing. This doesn't save anybody. Wonderful. I stayed up and watched it. 12.32 a.m. And I was just watching, thinking, God made Mars. God made the Mohawk. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. I'm just checking to see whether you read the same articles I do. Don't leave the Scriptures, Timothy, because nothing else will make you wise unto salvation. Nothing. Number four, continue in what you have learned, Timothy, and and believed, because the Scriptures brought you to Christ. Let's read it all. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. One, knowing from whom you learned it. Two, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the holy, holy writings. And three, they are able to make you wise unto salvation. Now four, through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the Scriptures do that. This is unpacking how the wisdom leads to salvation. How does, they, how, do, how does it make you wise unto salvation? It makes you wise enough to recognize Jesus. That's how it works. You, without the Bible informing your mind about the nature of the Son of God, you won't know Him. They missed Him. You can miss Him. But the Bible makes you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy, it's true, you grew up in a Jewish home. Your mom and your grandmother brought you up in the Scriptures. And later, you heard the Gospel. Somebody came to Lystra. I think he was a Christian before Paul got there, because he calls him a disciple. So somebody brought the gospel to Lystra, and, and you believed it. Somebody heralded Jesus as the Messiah to you, and you said, yes, that's the fulfillment of everything Mom has taught me. How did that happen? The Bible made you wise on salvation through Jesus the Messiah. That's how it happened. So Timothy, don't leave this book. Don't go on. Don't progress. Don't be avant-garde. Don't be progressive. Be solid. Like a rock on the rock. Number five. 
continue in what you have learned and, and believed because the scriptures are God breathed. Starting at the beginning. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. One, knowing from whom you learned it. Two, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, the holy writings. Three, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Four, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now verse 16. All Scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God. That is one of the most important sentences in the Bible. All scriptures God breathed, or historically we've, in English, usually translated it inspired by God, and not meaning any general inspiration like, well, that was an inspired musical performance, but rather a particular kind of divine influence that makes this book God's Word. Now let me clarify what's being referred to. The Old Testament is being referred to immediately, right? Uh, The New Testament hasn't been written yet. This is part of it. This letter is part of it. So when he says all Scripture, he means all the Jewish Scriptures that you grew up on are God's inspired word. However, let's clarify that it is right in principle to include the New Testament for many reasons. I'll give you maybe four. And you can take the seminar that I do on why we believe the Bible if you want more. Number one, what Jesus said about his own teachings was that they were on a par with Scripture, Matthew 5, and that he had the authority of God when he spoke. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work, John 14.10. So the teachings of Jesus assume a Scripture-level authority and quality. Number two, Jesus promised this would happen, and he prepared for it to happen, that his apostles would provide scripture and authority for the church to be built on, like it says in Ephesians 2.20. For example, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. These men, fearful that they might not get it right when they provide the writings for the early church to make sure that the old is completed in the new. He said, don't worry about that. I'm pouring out the Holy Spirit on you in particular so that you will be led into all the truth you need. Number three, the apostles claimed that that happened. First Corinthians 2.13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So Paul is claiming to be inspired the way The Old Testament was inspired. And then the fourth reason, and there are numerous more, Peter put Paul's writings in the same category with the Holy Scriptures in 2 Peter 3.16 when he said they're twisting Paul's letters like they do the other Scriptures. 
So this is four pointers to something that could be argued for much more extensively. So when I say in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired, I mean Old and New Testament. What we have from the apostles and their close associates and what we have from the prophets are one inspired book. Let's contrast for the sake of highlighting the unique value of both, what Paul says here about Scripture and what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21. Here's what Peter says. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is emphasizing that when the prophets spoke on God's behalf, they were being carried, as it were, along by the Holy Spirit in order to secure the truth of what they spoke. There was a very clear difference between true and false prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, here's what Paul does differently. Paul does not focus in these words on the writers, but on the writings themselves, which is even more significant and remarkable. All Scripture, it's the same word back up there with holy writings. You've known the sacred writings, same word here, just translated Scripture here. Writings, the, 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 the part that came out on the parchment not just was in the head or in the mouth, but came out here. This is what he says was God breathed. So the, the process of Scripture creation by those who were being carried by the Spirit was such that the product of their hands in writing was the God-breathed writing. That's what it says in verse 16. Not simply that they themselves were somehow mystically carried along. Which is why, as you know, the elder affirmation of faith that we elders, 40 of us, sign with hearty affirmation goes like this in the very first section. We believe that the Bible consisting in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament is the infallible Word of God. Verbally inspired, that is not a throwaway phrase, it's based on what I just said. Verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscript. So the reason there's this reference to verbal inspiration and the original manuscripts is because God was jealous in this verse, not simply to say the men were carried along, but the writings are God-breathed. And therefore, the book, to the degree that it conforms to those original manuscripts, is the very Word of God. So, Timothy, don't leave it. Continue on in what you have learned and believed. Bethlehem, Hold fast to it. Let's linger for a minute here, Bethlehem. 
Have you ever experienced an amazement close to what we should feel that the creator of the universe has spoken a God-breathed book which we now hold in our hands. I mean, you just must stop and think of the massive significance of that. Does this look familiar to you? It shouldn't. I never bring this Bible. Schofield Reference Edition. King James Version. Happy birthday, son. January 11, 1961. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Mother and daddy, 15 years old. This is my book for four years. I got another one when I was 19. I got an RSV. (laughs) Used it for the next 40 years. Then I got an ESV, and I'm happy there till I die. But this was my book. And I love to turn in here and look at these blue and red marks that a 15 and a 16 and a 17 and an 18 and 19 year old wrote. It is amazing that we have this book. God has spoken. Ask him to give you an amazement that is suitable. We are in a process of one of the most significant greatest transition this church has ever known. It is inevitable that such transitions happen, and it is very good. God has wrought wonders for us in the last eight months, has he not? One human voice in this pulpit replaced by another human voice. But the divine voice sounding from this pulpit stays exactly the same because it is in a book and it is nowhere else and it never changes, never. If there is any key to God's merciful blessings on this 141-year-old church. It is this. We have continued. We have stayed. We have remained in the God-breathed book. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. So I say to you elders, and there are some of you here, and I say to Jason Meyer in particular, 
continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. If Bethlehem is to be a place of salvation and a place of treasure and a place of sweetness, continue in the Scripture, holy, God-breathed, inerrant, infinitely valuable, leading to salvation through Jesus Christ, sweet. So, Timothy, that's the deepest foundation of all six, but I have one more. Number six, continue in what you have learned and believed because Scripture is profitable, inestimably profitable. So let's read verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because it is the God-breathed Word of God, it is profitable, inestimably Profitable. That word profitable is used in 1 Timothy 4 8. Familiar verse for some of you. Bodily training is a little profitable. Godliness is profitable or valuable in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. And this verse in our text says that godliness, which is profitable in every way, comes from the Bible. So the profitable effect of Scripture, according to verse 17, is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's godliness. So, Bodily exercise is a little profitable, so give some time to that. And godliness, being equipped for every good work, is super profitable. So give yourself to the origin of that, which is the Bible. The Bible is profitable to make you godly, to make you holy. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we, this book has been fought over, bled over, taught over, and the, the point of the book, according to verse 17, is good deeds. God-exalting doctrine for the sake of God-exalting deeds that are good for people. Amazing. It's utterly practical. <laughs> big book, big effect on practical living. That's what it says in verse 17. So the Bible aims to make us godly, doers of good, according to verse 17. Equipped for every good deed. And how does it do it? It's profitable for teaching. So, Lives are changed and we are made 
competent and equipped for deeds that glorify God by teaching. And then he spells out teaching in three, I think, sequential acts. See if you agree with this. Can't prove this? Just try it on you. Profitable for teaching, for correction, no, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Reproof, correction, what do you hear there? Reproof, correction, here's what I hear. You're going in the wrong direction. Stop, I reprove you. That's bad, don't do that. Stop, stop, stop. That's reproof. The Bible does that. Stop, don't do that. Flee fornication, for example. Don't be stingy, for example. Don't be afraid. Stop, you're fearing, stop. So, reproof. Correction is zoop, like zoop. Like, I'm going to correct you. You're going this way, do this way. And the Bible shows you, here's the, here's the right way. So the Bible stops you, reproves you, stop that. You're, you're going to ruin yourself, you're going to ruin your family, you're going to ruin everything. So stop, and now correction, here's the, here's the right way, the right way. And then, training in righteousness. Okay, on that way, lifelong training. So the Bible does. So teaching has this effect of stop, correct, train. Why? So that men and women, the word here is anthropos, no male, no male implication here. Men and women will be equipped for deeds. <laughs> love your kids better. Love your husband better. Love your wife better. Love your neighbors better. Love your colleagues better. Love missions better. Do everything that needs to be done to the glory of God. That's what the Bible so teaching does. A well-taught church is not a church that buries itself in the classroom, but is released from the classroom, from the teaching and the preaching to go home and be a more humble, kind, loving, gentle, courageous, helpful person to the glory of God. So, Timothy, let me sum it up for you. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Sound familiar? It's a proverb. Don't forsake your grandmother's teaching. In this case, their character is of such a nature you better listen close to what they say. So let me give you the reasons. Number one, the character of your mother and grandmother. Number two, the marks of divine holiness in the Scriptures, which you could see if you ask God to open your eyes. Number three, the power of Scriptures to make you wise, leading to salvation. Number four, the, the Scripture brought you to Christ. Number five, the Holy Scripture is God-breathed. And number six, it is supremely profitable, especially for your practical life. So let me close maybe with this question. If, if Paul says that bodily exercise is a little profitable and that godliness, which is produced by the equipping of the Scriptures to do good deeds, is super profitable in this life and the next, then are you 
giving as much attention to your soul as to your body? That's my question. Are you, are you giving as much... interest, concern for your being equipped for every good deed and eternal profitability of it as you are to the way you eat and the way you exercise and the way you sleep and, and, and the way you house yourself and how you buckle yourself in in your car and how you take appropriate medicines when you start to get sick and boo, are we so vigilant over our bodies which are of relatively minor significance in comparison to our everlasting souls, because we can get our body back anyway. That's the first question. Or, let me just be more specific, fathers, husbands, say husbands, heads of households, single moms and single dads, are you giving as much attention to feed your family with the holy writings as you are to feed them with good food. So those are two questions for all of us that I hope the Lord will use to stir up a deep pursuit of the infinite value of the Bible. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you for your word. Sometimes I allow myself to ponder the horrific possibility that you might have created the world and put people in it and never revealed anything about yourself and played the dark Lord in a distant way and then demanded of us what we did not know. So I am with trembling gratitude thankful that you have spoken and that you've spoken in a book and that in our case you've you've translated it into English for us, and we have access to it so readily. Help us to love your word. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy, my joy might be in you, and your joy might be full, Jesus said. Make this a happy affair. Ask in his name. Amen.